0: I can't see you. Okay, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father, a faith that you've given us by grace. Father, thank you for always bringing us back to the Gospel, the good news regarding your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Father thank you for the opportunity to fellowship uniquely in this way on a regular basis in this little church on a hill father what a blessing it is may we never become familiar with it but rather embrace it for what it is a very manifestation of your grace and your love father we pray for those not with us this morning that earnestly desire to be here with us members of our congregation even we pray as well for those that are still lost, that somehow, some way, before it's too late, they're humbled and they receive the good news about your Son, the way we all have. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your Son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt against us, to make a morning like this a reality even. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, what is repentance uh, and who gets to define it? That is a very important secondary point there. I hope you don't miss it. What is repentance and who gets to define it? I suppose there's infinite number of definitions floating around out there that are accommodating to man that do not demand a whole lot uh, of man on this very subject. But as we'll continue to see, repentance is a key portion of the gospel call and it cannot be left out for uh, myriad reasons. So with that said, on Tuesday uh, we were given a special message from a one, Dr. R. C. Sproul. If you didn't catch it, I certainly encourage you to uh, listen to it. Uh, we have the recording and the YouTube video um, posted on the website, of course. Uh, here's the highlight reel from that precious lesson up here on the board, and it was titled "What Is the Gospel?" And I'm summarizing Sproul: uh, The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ and His work. Period. Who was he? Who did say he was? And what did he do? The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ and his work, period. The corollary to this, of course, as the Spirit's been pointing out, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has ne- is never to be confused with merely facts about him or his activities. Never. The good news is about a person. Uh, we are not walking resumes or walking definitions. We are people. He was a person and is a person of the Godhead, nonetheless. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is never to be confused with merely facts about him or his activities. And I think that's one of the key points the Spirit's been re emphasizing here as of late that both unbelievers and demons even truly believe. A lot of things about Jesus Christ and His cross. Yet they don't believe in Him as Lord and Savior. And that's the distinction. Even demons believe that God is one and they shudder. Even demons were at the cross watching on the great theatron called life, what was going on. And then they would have also seen the resurrected Jesus. That's someone's phone. They would have seen all of those things and guess what? Would have believed them. Just like an unbeliever can believe that Jesus Christ existed, died on the cross, and maybe even was resurrected and they still refuse to believe in Him as Lord and Savior. They aren't as the Savior would Himself say, willing to surrender to Him. Only a truly humbled person will ever admit their needs and accept that God is the only one who can save them. But a person who rejects His salvation clings to the life in which they were born into, within the sphere of death, the sovereignty of it even. While a humbled person with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit is able to be delivered from the throes of spiritual death, we call this repentance because that same whole person is able to turn away from sin and towards God through Christ. That's why we say it's two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith. But you, because you're being delivered, you're turning from one to the other, your whole person. Remember, you're made new. Again, but the person who refuses this way that Jesus spoke of—that is himself—is the one who refuses to repent, and therefore, being arrogant, does not receive what we might call an, let's call it an active or supernatural repentance by grace. A la james 46 because god gives grace to the humble all right that is definitely someone's phone can someone just shut it off whosoever it is oh my word scott did you bring her it's definitely someone's phone do you guys is it just me that hears it yeah okay oh my word the patriots are losing today it's all because of you Thank you. That's all right. So we borrowed a bit more from Sproul on this idea of repentance, since we had gotten his definition. It was really not his definition, but you know his sort of intimation of of the gospel. What is repentance? True repentance is confidently grounded in what God says about Himself in His Word, but it it, it, it expresses itself in humility toward Him. We come before our Creator with confidence that He is faithful and just to forgive our sins, 1 John 1, 8, and 9, but we come humbly, refusing to believe or affirm that He owes us forgiveness. Every act of divine forgiveness is an instance of the Lord keeping His promises to pardon His people, but it is at the same time a forgiveness we never deserve. That's what a repentant heart looks like. That's what a humble heart looks like. It's not some flippant attitude about facts or making some demand on God because He says He forgives. We don't deserve any of this last time I checked. That's the point. We are only on part four of this series, and yet we've already been given several undeniable arguments as to why repentance is much more than mere man changing his mind about sin. We've looked at the simple fact that even demons know about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and yet they remain destined for the lake of fire. And I intimated this before as well. I know unbelievers that admit the facts about Jesus. Don't even deny them. And yet they refuse Him as Lord and Savior, preferring to live in their sins. And you know what? God gives them that right. God didn't create robots. He created every human being with the right to believe what they wanted to believe and choose what they want to choose. So he honors it, even though it hurts him. And I'm using what we would call in theology an anthropopathism there. It hurts him that individuals would say no to the gospel. On Thursday, we also considered a very famous man... If you want to call him that in holy scripture, King David, go to Acts 13:22. Acts 13:22. <clears throat> Acts 13 verse 22. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. That's a huge statement up here on the board for some additional clarity on that. A man after my heart, while God is perfect and man isn't, he affirms this statement about David multiple times in his word. 1 Samuel 13, 14, Psalm 89, 20, and Acts 13, 22, as we just noted. And then David, his humble servant, reveals the truth of it. For example, a repentant heart multiple times in the Word. Psalm 32, 38, and 51. As the Spirit's been saying for years now from this pulpit, humility is the key to the spiritual life. For example, again, a repentant heart is a humble heart. That's the point. The Spirit's been trying to make here that a repentant heart is a humble heart and there's a lot more to it than just some change of mind, just some mental affirmation that you know, something is a sin or that someone's a sinner. Even demons know that stuff. Even unbelievers know that stuff. As Sproul stated, true repentance expresses itself in humility toward God. So never forget that David was saved by the grace of God. Just like every human being, past, present, and future, has or will be. David was saved by the grace of God. And just as a little side note, as I was preparing this lesson, and it turned into a little mini lesson almost here for the next five minutes, maybe. Just as a side note, I want you to think about this. Um, Because I think people are confused about repentance because they are primarily confused about grace. Just like the reason people are confused about the gospel is primarily because they're confused about God's grace. And so, concentrate on what I'm about to say. While giving grace is easy for God, nowhere in Scripture does it say that man's decision will be easy. Let me say that again. While giving grace is easy for God, nowhere in Scripture does it say that man's decision will be easy, which is why conversion usually takes some time. Go to Luke 13, 24. I'll show you something in Holy Scripture just so you don't take my word for it. And I'll give you the original language just to drive the point home. I think that people... people Wrongly assume just because grace is something that's easy for God that receiving it is something that is always easy for man. Luke 13.24 And we're talking about salvation here, of course. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Wait a minute. What did did he just say that? Yeah. Strive to enter through the narrow door for many I tell you will seek to enter and will not be able. Agonizomai is for strive. To contend for a prize, to struggle. Compete in the games, fight, labor earnestly, strive to struggle like engaged in an intense athletic contest or warfare where the English agonize comes from. So what do you read then? Go ahead, put the English word in there, agonize to enter through the narrow door. Does that sound easy to you? If you're you're in a wrestling match, does that sound like an easy endeavor? No, wrestling is really hard. Fighting in a boxing ring is really hard yet, this is what Scripture says about entering through the narrow door. Strive. Agonize over it. Why? Because conversion takes time. You know why? Because the flesh that you were born in really likes the sin life. That's why. Really likes the self-life. Really likes being self-righteous. That's why. There's a lot to consider, isn't there? For man... God-given grace is easy, but man receiving it on God's terms isn't always easy. That's the point. That's why we have unbelievers still that know the facts about Jesus Christ, but they're still unbelievers. They may even go to church on Sunday. But they're still unbelievers. Why? Because they haven't surrendered yet. They haven't truly repented yet. They aren't willing, you see. And when you're not willing, God will not give you those things. Repentance and saving faith, etc. So that's what Scripture says, plain and simple. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. It's like when He says, I never knew you. But didn't we do all these things? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we do blah, blah, blah? You line them up. Yeah, but I don't know you. Not that way. So some of you might be saying, but I thought the Bible says that it is by grace through faith that we are saved. And it's really easy. And that is true. For God. God doesn't have any problem saving somebody. He wants to save you. And it's easy for him because he's God. And all things are possible with God. But the Bible recognizes that man still has a part in his own salvation. And because of his natural love for sin and the self-life, there's a real struggle involved, to borrow from that Greek word. So, contrary, contrary to what some Christians believe, by grace doesn't always mean, quote, easy. Of course it's easy for God. But what makes you think it's easy for a man born in his flesh? While easy for God, it's not easy for man due to his natural condition, and the magnitude of the decision he must make. For example, deny self to borrow from Jesus. So, that was our little sidebar. Back to King David, where we have what many would say is one of the great saints in human history. And yet we know something awful about him, don't we? Awful. Really awful. Go to Psalm fifty-one zero. Psalm 51.0. Zero. zero gives us the context. So we know something really awful about David. But we just read in Scripture that David is a man after God's own heart. So we have to go through this thing, this reconciliation in our souls so that we get Scripture right, because Scripture never really contradicts itself. To a person unwilling to go through, these, through this effort, it will remain that way, Psalm fifty-one-zero, But for a person who's willing to do, all Scripture lines up. For the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him, After he had gone into Bathsheba. Okay, so David, listen, that wasn't his wife. That was some other guy's wife. So he had sex, adulterated, with someone else's wife. This is the man after God's own heart. So stop the presses, right? I mean, you mean David, described by God as a man after my heart, was an adulterer? Yep. And not only that, he had the woman's husband killed, which makes him a murderer too. Yep. And yet, the point on the board it still exists. Hmm. Since God, oh, excuse me, this point. Again, a man after my heart. While God is perfect and man isn't, He affirms the statement about David multiple times. And then David, the servant, the one being described, reveals it in the Word. And again, as we're going to continue to see, humility is the key to the spiritual life. Since God is the author and creator of all humans, He is the one who gets to set the bar. If He said David was a man after his heart, then what do we have to say? It's true if the Word discloses to us that David was an adulterous murderer, you know what? It's true too. How do those things reconcile? The short answer is because God sees the heart. We're all sinners in here. Any man willing, right now, don't please don't do this. Any man willing to say, um, any married man in here willing to say they've never lusted after another woman other than their wife, that makes you all Adulterous, by Jesus' own statement. And God, guess what? sees your heart. Since God is the author and creator of all humans, He is the one who gets to set the bar. While it's true that God hates sin, and adultery and murder are sins, He also said what He said about David. We can't just walk away from this, my friends. That's the point. You can't just say, well, it's one of those things I'm just never going to understand. In this case, we can understand it. And it's good that we understand it. And we can be encouraged by it. Maybe you're not an adulterous murderer. You're something else. And if you're judging David, that's worse. So we can't walk away from this. These are the kinds of human, let's call them paradoxes, that people shake their heads at. But the key is understanding God. The key is understanding God. His character, his nature, and his integrity. Which are, is perfect, by the way. He didn't make a little exception. Well, I really like David. Because he's kind of a handsome, ruddy-looking, red-headed guy that fights battles for me. So I'm just going to forget that he's an adulterous murderer. No, God doesn't, God doesn't do that thing. God's... Calls it what what it is. (laughs) So we can't just walk away from this. We must earnestly reconcile how such things can hold true. Our only other option, frankly, is to dismiss the Bible as contradictory, like some do, and consider ourselves to be pitied, having had faith in a fraudulent God. But may it never be. How dare we become cowards when it matters most. So for now, in David's case, we may rightly say that since God sees the heart, having created it and inserted it into David, he sees something good in him. Based on Holy Scripture, it is apparently a humble, repentant heart. That's what he sees. And as we see in David's own words, he was quite remorseful over his sins. We might rightly say contrite. And just as another side note, here's our second mini-lesson this morning. Do not, I repeat, do not confuse Romans 8.1, and I'll get to that in a moment, and the like as proof that repentance isn't a righteous thing. There are some people out there that that take Holy Scripture and twist it to the degree where they say you're sinning for feeling remorse about some sin. That that in of itself is a sin. Really? Really? Well, I'll give you this, that context is key. Romans 8.1 reads, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, for the record... If you understand the context of that entire passage, this is a what we would call positional sanctification issue, not an experiential sanctification one. You see, some people try to bleed one over into the other so they can live like hell and then just make flippant responses and call that repentance because God forbid you have any remorse over sin. God forbid you see the things that God sees and despise them, hate them even, and have a certain response, a visceral response to sin itself. In your life, they'll tell you you're a sinner. I'll tell you they're an idiot, and they don't know their Bibles. We are, quote, set free from the law of sin and death, Romans 8.2. That is from the penalty of sin, but not the power of it yet. We are set free from the penalty of sin. That's the context of Romans 8.1. Don't ever let anybody tell you otherwise. That somehow that covers now, that, that the, being delivered from the penalty of sin somehow excuses you from feeling remorse for sinning against God. That's a lie. But some believe it. Unfortunately, there are lots of so-called Christians... <clears throat> Excuse me, who carry Romans 8:1 in their shirt pockets and pull it out every time they sin and refuse to repent biblically. And remember the definition between attrition versus contrition. It's gotten so bad in some systematic theologies that people are living lives believing that God can and will save a person but not change them. In other words, The repentant heart, the repentance that Jesus talked about is some consideration later on. And their theology reflects this with terms such as the carnal Christian, and I use that as a capital C, capital C, which essentially describes an unrepentant person, a person without remorse for their sins whatsoever. But supposedly, God will save that person. I guess Jesus was a liar. I guess Peter and the other apostles, including Paul, were all liars. I guess they didn't understand. (laughs) Let us set the record straight on this. Again, context is key, always. Repentance is not founded on sin being an inconvenience to man, that it incurs punishment, for example, Rather, it is remorse, as David so intimately shared from his heart. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned. Psalm 51.3-4 Again, repentance is not founded on sin being an inconvenience to man. In other words, you don't repent just to avoid punishment. That's the kid in the cookie jar, right? Don't punish me. That's attrition versus contrition. Sorry to let you down. I know I shouldn't be doing that. Two different attitudes. And we know which one David had. Either David was wrong in his heart to feel this way, or we accept our previous point as a matter of fact up here on the board. Again, context is key. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a positional sanctification issue, not an experiential sanctification one. Get that straight in your souls. We are set free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8.2, that is from the penalty of sin, but not the power of it yet. All right, he's still in Psalm 51:0. That was our little second sidebar for this morning. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So again, David was an adulterer. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak. And blameless when you judge so in other words david had no problem actually facing his sin and recognizing what sin was to his father in heaven and remember he was a man after god's own heart last time i checked god hates sin so what we see is something that we can all rest assured up here on the board again god hates sin it makes perfect sense that a man after his own heart would hate offending the one who saved him from the throes of sin. Would we expect anything less? Would we expect anything less? I mean, to me, just to share, whenever I know that I've sinned, it just it ushers in a... a um, there's a remorse, obviously, but it's also a, a moment because of the remorse... It brings me to a place of gratitude. That I say, this is awful to God. This sin that I've just committed is awful to God. And yet He saved me from it. Do you understand? For me not to see it that way, I miss out on the deliverance, in the, in the good reminder, something good out of something bad. It reminds me of how much He's delivered me from. How wretched that I am. How wretched sin is. How destructive it is. How harmful it is. How awful it is. Because I haven't been delivered from the power of it yet. Penalty yes, power no. And God uses that as fuel for my gratitude. But what if I had no remorse whatsoever? Where's the fuel for my gratitude? you end up seeing these bratty so-called Christians who really think of Jesus Christ as a uh, throw mat, as a rebound guy, as someone that they just pick up every so once and, all and use them and then throw them back out. Why? Because they have no regard for sin whatsoever and the awfulness of it and what it means to God who hates sin. And therefore, they're never driven back to their knees. They don't have a repentant heart. They don't confess to God. God is nothing but, in heaven, is nothing but a hedged bet to a lot of so called Christians who are going to have a really tough time at the judgment seat when they find out they might not even be getting in. Why? Poor attitude. That's why. So it makes perfect sense to me the way David intimates how he felt about sin in offending God. We also read another chapter in Psalms to help us see David's heart, but before doing so, I want to put to bed this issue of Romans 8, one being misconstrued. Go to Psalm 32, verse 1. Psalm 32, verse 1. Imagine that. We're going to go back to Psalms to prove a point about Romans 8.1. You, know you know why we can do that? Because there's one gospel and there's one truth. That's why. And David was saved the same way we we're all saved. Psalm 32, one. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That is a reference all the way forward to Romans 8.1. Therefore now there is no condemnation in Christ. How, how blessed is that person to be delivered, to be saved from the very penalty of sin, knowing that they're going to spend for all of eternity with the holy God of the universe. How blessed is that person? That's a positional issue, my friends. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So we see that David, too, understood what Paul meant. Imagine that. When he wrote about being set free from the penalty of sin, in Romans 8:1. up here on the board, to sort of weave this together, David's example. David understood what Paul wrote in Romans 8:1. That's right, he did. You might say, well, that was, so- no, shush. David understood what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 1. Long before Paul was even born. A thousand years before even. Why? Because there's one gospel. That's why. David understood what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 1 and was elated to know that God saves and delivers man by grace from the penalty of sin. That's Psalm 32, 1-2. to However, we then see this same man's reflection on the time when he refused to repent and confess his sin experientially. He knows that the penalty has been paid for, or will be. He was forward-looking, but you know what I'm saying. He knows that God will take care of that sin problem for him. But yet, we see this same man's reflection on a time when he refused to repent and confess his sin experientially. And unlike the person who supposes there's no such cause for repentance in a believer, we see this man after God's own heart filled with the results of functioning in arrogance, refusing to confess and repent for a time. Look at verse 3. We're right here. Look at verse three. So while verses one and two echo of Romans eight one, verse three speaks of the experiential side of things. When I kept silent about my sin, so the sin was ever before him, but he kept silent. In other words, he was refusing. Do you see? He was refusing to repent and confess it. Anybody ever done that? I'm just gonna. I'm, why are you? Why are you laughing? <laughs> right. Anybody ever live in a sin and go, I'm just gonna like ignore this for a little while. I'm just gonna like, you know, go over there. God's trying to talk to you, he's knocking. He's like, What are we doing here? What are we doing? Here goes the spiral, right? That's what that's what David did for a while. That's what he did. Just like you're all laughing because you're all sick and you do the same things. Some of you are like this right now. <laughs> he said, When I kept silent about my sin, when I refused to come forth. All right, let me. Uh, this could put all this to bed right now. Does he not recognize that he sinned? Then what's the problem? If repentance was just recognizing that you sinned, that you're a sinner, wouldn't that be the end of it? Obviously not. It's not like he didn't know the sin was there. Big white elephant in the room, right? So that can't be repentance. When I kept silent about my sin, which is really David refusing to confess his sin, repent even, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now you see why God said, this is a man after my own heart. Even when he was screwing up, he, he was convicted by it. His heart was melted by it. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. That doesn't sound like some mental gymnastic exercise, does it? That sounds like something pressing into him as a whole. God wasn't letting him go, in other words. God wasn't letting him off the hook. Remember, God is not mocked. God wasn't letting him off the hook. He said, you're going to repent. You're going to come forward on this thing. We're going to have our day, you see, you and me. And some of you are like, oh man, that's me like right now. Right. We're going to have our day. Trust me, because you don't mock me. And I'm the one who created you. So can we just get on with the little show? For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained. That sound like just a mental exercise to you? No. My vitality was drained away, as with the fever heat of summer. Salah. Up here on the board, Galatians 6, 7. Yeah, that's New Testament. Imagine that. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this he will also reap. You want to stop playing games with God Almighty? This is what you get. And if you've been at this for any length of time, you know the more you grow up in the faith, to whom much is given, much is required. So this is what you have to look forward to. The more you grow up in the faith, And then you sin, the heavier the hand of God is on you. And your conscience is going to blister. Blister. That's why he said like a fever, right? It's going to blister. And then he says, Salah. Like, this is awesome. (laughs) What kind of maniac was David? David was a man after God's own heart. That's what kind of maniac I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. This is not hard. It makes total sense, right? But people want to play games, try to get out. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. So he comes around. He comes around. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sins, Salah. So. So in other words, what do we see? He was driven to this confession. He was driven to accepting these things about himself. That's a repentant heart. That's what you don't see in in an unbeliever. Do you understand? Do you understand what's been coming from this pulpit regarding the gospel? That's what you don't see in an unbeliever. An unbeliever is able to, as one person intimated to me that was just saved in the last couple years recently, I just lived in sin and I had no problem with it. But you went to church, yep. This church, yep. I just lived in sin. I really didn't have any problem with it. That's an unbeliever. That's the distinction between what goes on in the soul of an unbeliever versus a believer. An unbeliever doesn't have any remorse. God is just a tool. Jesus Christ is just a tool to an unbeliever. And they're just looking for a bet into heaven, their best bet while clinging to the self-life. That's not David. Here's what we have with David up here on the board. In his example, a humble heart confesses sin. That's what I see. Oh, God will drive you there. We call that divine discipline, right? A repentant heart turns away from it. A humble heart confesses it says, yep, it's a sin. A repentant heart turns away from it. And we're not just talking about mentally. This is what we're looking at here. David wasn't merely afraid of discipline from God. He had a contrite heart a heart ground down before the sovereign God of the universe. So his counsel is to go to God in prayer. You ready? You say, well, that's me. What's his counsel? Go to God in prayer when we are disoriented from from Him. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach Him. You are my hiding place, You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. It's another word for salvation, right? Deliverance. Salah. That's unbelievably good counsel. So the corollary point on the board up here. Again, more on David's example. A repentant heart is a remorseful one. It is the same heart that seeks salvation slash deliverance by the hand of God, namely by His grace you return to God. What do you think you do as a believer? You sin, you turn back to God. You have a certain remorse for it, he delivers you. If you want to sit there and re- ignore it, then you're going to get pummeled. And it's going to come to a what would you say a fever pitch or a blistering head. Don't don't put God to the test, especially not as a believer. Again, a repentant heart is a remorseful one. It is the same heart that seeks salvation, deliverance by the hand of God, namely by His grace. And then in this magnificent passage, we see God's response to the one who seeks Him righteously, repentantly. Look at verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do you see the series of events? David's playing a game, he gets pressed down, he repents, he confesses, and God says, okay, now I can work with you. I couldn't before. All I could do then was discipline you. Bring you back down to your knees, get that whatever that arrogance is in you out. Root it out, and then we can talk. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. Because some of you are at that point where you've been living in a ridiculous lie or some kind of sin and now you're saying, well, this is great. Now what do I do? Right? I just exited this thing. It's just, I don't, I don't even want to turn around because of the wake I just left behind me. It's just basically garbage and dung, let's say. Now what? God says, come to me. Right? Didn't Jesus say that? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. That's the beauty of God's grace and His mercy. But He's not going to do that for you until you pony up for yourself, until you recognize, until you accept that you're a sinner, that sin is, mo- is offensive to God. And that if you're not offended by said sin in your own life, something's wrong. And if you're never offended by sin in your life and you only care about not being punished because you're on some weird religious treadmill with God, then it's quite possible you're not even saved. So this last verse, now think about this. This was lovely. This was a lovely way to think about this whole passage. This last verse just makes me think about our Father in Heaven as Abba, or Dad. Here's why. This whole passage with David is like hearing a man describe how he was wildly disoriented to his father. Okay, he was an adulterous murderer, and he was like, la 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 la. I think I'm just going to go my way. I'm not going to deal with it. So he was wildly disoriented to his father, refusing to repent of his sin to his father. And the father is waiting there patiently in his unique place, as he always has. And then eventually the man says, I had to give up. My conscience was killing me. My, My vitality was drained out. Don't arm wrestle with God. So he says, eventually I had to give up. My conscience was just killing me. And so he returns to his father, remorseful, broken, contrite, and is delivered from the suffering as he reoriented to his father. And the father says, see what happens when you refuse to repent? Here, let me teach you some more now. What a wonderful scene. What a wonderful scene. It literally, it's like a reenactment, and I shouldn't say it, a preenactment of all of us. Isn't this what we go through? We do something heinous, and don't say, well, at least I'm not an adulterous murderer. Oh, you judgmental fool, right? (laughs) That's a sin right there, right? You do something heinous, and then you kind of like refuse to accept it. You know, you're kind of like, it's not really... I'm saying, it's not this far. Unless I'm not him. Right? And God's like, we're not going to go anywhere with this. So then he pressures you down, and eventually you confess and repent. And God says, see, we can really, you know, we could shorten this a little bit. Just saying. We could shorten this. And I think, I, I personally believe that's what happens on average when you grow up more in the faith. You, realize, you sin and you know better than to not come to God and confess and repent. Do and, you understand? And so the whole process is truncated. It's, it's shortened, if you would. And God says, very good. Let's move on. Very good. Let's move on. Now, with one caveat, because I just had this come up the other day. Someone emailed me something. And... Um, You may be delivered from it, but there are certain things that you can do in your life because what a man uh, sows, that's what he's going to reap, remember. There are certain things in your life that you're going to potentially reap for the rest of your life. And so there's no guarantee is what I'm saying. You'll be delivered from it in the sense that you can live through it and you can find some peace in it. But there's no guarantee that I see in the Bible that if you make a really horrible decision that there isn't some lifelong ramification is what I'm saying. I mean, you don't think that it bothered him that he killed somebody? That he was an adulterer? I mean, it's not that he wasn't forgiven of those things, but you have to recognize that other people were affected, that you hurt other people. And again... Not, it's not a downer. With that in tow, it allows you once again, because like David said, against you and you alone I've sinned, Lord. And just, rem- just a remembrance, not a necessarily a pressing down because you're not under discipline per se anymore. Just the remembrance gives you a, 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 a more of a reason to be thankful and grateful for all that He's delivered you from. Right? It's not hard. It's not hard. All right, let's fast forward now, but only in time, never a change in doctrine, so to speak, to the New Testament. Go to James 4.6. James 4.6. Seems like one of the most common verses coming from this pulpit as of late. James 4.6, for good reason. Again, our lesson title, What is Repentance and Who Gets to Define It? James 4, 6, but he gives a greater grace. Now, we've been focusing, and I quote this very often, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. But do not forget what's being said at the beginning of this this verse. He gives a greater grace up here on the board, a greater grace. The power of God's grace alone is able to save man from sin. His grace is greater than all enemies opposing it, the flesh, the world, and Satan. True repentance, then is a grace gift. That's a greater grace. In other words, to take repentance out of the equation is to take some of God's perfect grace out of the equation. It's greater to put it in, in other words. It's greater to realize the truth of the matter, that God grants repentance, that a repentant heart, the one that you have, the one that we just saw with David, is a gift from God. That's not something that you have as as an unbeliever. You can't. That has to be a gift from God because everything good comes from heaven, right? So you have to recognize that repentance itself is a grace gift. And when you try to take that out of the gospel equation, you're trying to remove some of God's grace in His own salvation plan. That's the whole point. This is a greater grace. Look at verse 7. Therefore, excuse me, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. What do you think verse 9 is about? It's repentance. Oh, you want to laugh about it? You want to forget about how awful and, uh, sin is and offensive sin is to God? Let your laughter be turned into mourning. You want to sit here and giggle around and play pretend and, and, and forget that, that God sees your heart and sees your sin and is, and is actually offended by it? You want to forget about Let your laughter be turned to mourning. You see it? Humble yourselves. In other words, get back down on your knees. You're forgetting your place. That's what happened to David. He's saying, "What? What? You are you serious? you you're going to um, you're gonna you're gonna propose a joyful, happy life in the presence of sin in your life, unconfessed, if you would, or a unrepentant heart, if you would? That doesn't sound like." God's going to allow that at all. Why? Because He wants to deliver you. And when you're playing that game, guess what? You're like David. You're not delivered. You're headed for a downfall. Oh, for a time you may think you're getting away from it or getting away with it, but God's not mocked. So God says in the Holy, in holy Scripture, Humble yourselves. Tepai no'o means to make low. Show humility. True lowliness happens by being fully dependent on the Lord, dismissing reliance upon self, self self-government, and emptying, is that Latin carnal ego, this exalts the Lord as our all in all and prompts the gift of His fullness in us. If you humble yourselves, I'll exalt you. That's the pattern. This humility, let's call it the humility slash deliverance pattern is something we just saw with King David. And now we see it from... A saint that lived, I don't know, about a thousand years later? Again, it's not hard. And we also see this same pattern being set forth as the way to salvation proper from the one who came to, quote, seek and to save that which was lost. Now take all of that, as Barnhouse might say, an upside-down pyramid, all the substance and the content of what the Spirit just gave us this morning, and now go to Mark 8:34. Go to Mark 8:34. and now you might have a better appreciation of why Jesus said what He said, and why repentance is absolutely a part of the gospel. Mark 8:34. Mark 8:. 34, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take everything that we've learned this morning, upside down triangle, the whole full, the fullness and the weight of what we learned this morning and literally press it into what Jesus is saying right here up here on the board, he must deny himself. Repentance involves the mind, heart, and will of man. A person unwilling to deny himself cannot follow Jesus, precluding them from his salvation. That's a fact. As we closed with on Thursday, up here on the board, on the topic of salvation, God does all the work in salvation, quickening a humble person to true repentance and saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's the greater grace that James wrote about. All of it is by the grace of God. Of course it is. Unbelievers represent those unwilling to be saved. Isn't that, that was the whole idea with the rich young ruler. What must I do to be saved? To gain eternal life. To him it was always a thing to be gained, right? To gain eternal life. Well, get rid of that attitude, and the way you'll do that is, you know, get rid of all your stuff that you're tied to, right? Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus saw right through the whole game. Get rid of all that stuff, and then maybe you'll be in the right, your soil will be ripe. No, nope. What'd he do? He walked away depressed. He didn't want to be saved. He wanted to save himself. He said, what must I do to gain eternal life? You see? And he wanted Jesus to give him a little prescription, like the world will give you. What must you do to become rich and famous? I don't know. Become a YouTuber? I don't know. What is it nowadays? Right? What must you do? And God says, no, it's, it's not about what you do. It's what I do. I just want to know if you want to be saved. If you want me to save you. That's what I want to know. Do you or don't you want me to save you? And guess what? I'll do all the work. And on the other side of salvation, you're actually going to be made new. A new creature. (laughs) That has a love you've, you've never known before. That now has a hatred of the sin. My hatred of sin. Given to you. See, so unbelievers represent those unwilling to be saved. As Jesus clearly stated, their issue is their attachment to the self-life. Again, up here on the board, a humble heart cries out in desperation, not fully understanding all the forensics of salvation, but convicted of who is able to save it. That's why I wrote this, the last blog, One Kingdom, One Gospel. We don't always know everything. I mean, why are we still here if we knew everything at salvation? What are we doing? We still learn. We also read a hymn by uh, Augustus M. Toplady. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So I was reflecting on this as well. The recurring question in our studies is a simple one, a practical one at that. How does man suppose he can simultaneously cling to the self-life. This is what some will propose even from a pulpit on a Sunday morning. Oh no, that can be an after-the-fact consideration. When Jesus said, no way, no way, no way. How does man suppose he can simultaneously cling to the self-life, in other words, maintain an unrepentant heart, And cling to the cross. How does man suppose he can simultaneously do that thing? This is all that's all Jesus was saying. He's like, you got to make a decision. You can't have both. That's the whole point. Because my dad, he wants to change you completely. He wants to make you a new creature. So you can't have both. Is that really too much to demand from the one who's saving you? Is that really too much to demand? That's all Jesus was saying. We don't need to overcomplicate this. I don't need to get all dispensational with you and muck the whole thing up. It's obvious to me what he's saying. You can't have both. That's what he's saying. That's what he's always said. It's what the whole Bible says. Isn't that what we just saw with David, even a believer? You can't have both. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. Because I don't like sin. Sin is awful to me. That's all Jesus was saying. You can't have both. You know what? Listen closely. On that... Verse because that is a salvation verse. If Jesus were here right now, I am 100% convinced that he would be saying the exact same thing that he did in this precious passage we are now reading. 100% convinced. Maybe different language because, you know, what have you. But I'm totally convinced he'd be saying the same thing. He's like, no, you don't get me with arrogance, you don't get me unless you're willing to accept my terms. And don't just say you know certain facts about me either. Again, verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and then take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In other words, the one willing to let it go. Doesn't mean you're going to be quote unquote perfect at it. It's not going to be self evident, you know, like the moment after you're saved, the moment after, you know, you're justified by faith, the forensics, the salvation forensics are completed in heaven. None of that. It doesn't mean that you're going to be so completely whitewashed all of a sudden. You're just going to be this perfect, like, oh my God, I'm like amazing now. I never sin anymore. No, it's not going to be that experience. You may, not have it, you may not even have an emotional experience to it at all. There's nothing in the Bible that says you're going to have some great upheaval, emotional upheaval, and be like, oh, and run down the aisle and make a fool of yourself. I don't see that in the Bible. But I do see this, and these are my Lord's words. He said, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, Will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In other words, you've got to make a choice. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Never forget that while context always changes, Jesus Christ's gospel never does. It never has. You know how I know that? Up here on the board. Holy Scripture. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Okay, you ready? Here's another thought and I'm, I'm going to close here shortly. I should go through like 3 o'clock. <laughs> you did it. It's your fault. Everybody's like, No, that's what the pictures are coming on. I know. <laughs> Concentrate. Does it make any sense? I say. So Jesus Christ same yesterday, today, and forever. Does it make any sense that He would dismiss one gospel? Some propose this, by the way. So I'm fighting a battle. Does it make any sense that He would dismiss one gospel for another, when He was on the earth, and then send His apostles out with yet a third? and so on, does that make any sense? If he was the same today, yesterday, yesterday, today, and forever, and our God is not a God of confusion, but rather of peace, does that make any sense whatsoever? That is lunacy. It's lunacy given the simple fact that God is not a God of confusion. So says, guess what, you ready? Not Pastor Ed, Holy Scripture, 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty-three. Our God is a God of peace. Will you allow me this up here on the board? The quickest way to destroy His peace is to propose that there's more than one gospel. The quickest way to destroy His peace is to propose that there's more than one gospel. Every person who has ever been confused about the gospel of Jesus Christ Has asked the same question the apostles did when Jesus sent the young ruler away with his attachments to his riches. Then who can be saved? What? Who can be saved? This is after Jesus said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to follow me. Not impossible. It's really hard. I would not want to see the camel thing, though. Nobody. <laughs> Who can be saved? Isn't that the great question of all time? Honestly, isn't that the great question of all time? Repent! What? Come on! I love myself in my sin. How am I going to repent? I know. Who can be saved? Believe! What? I don't, all I believe is in myself because I'm over here in sin. Doing the backstroke. Anybody? Do the hustle? Right. I go way back to the 70s. <laughs> Who can be, how does an unbeliever, whose only faculty is the human flesh, go about repenting or even believing? That's a good question, isn't it? All I got for you is it happens. And you know what? It's absolutely 100% supernatural. Because God saves. God gives grace to the humble. That's all I can tell you. That's, all I have is for you is Scripture. Matthew nineteen twenty six, with people this is impossible. With God all things are possible. What would you want me to say to you? You gotta do this, this, and this? You gotta stand on your head and spit nickels? You gotta do I don't know. You gotta do this thing, you gotta do that thing, you gotta be humble. Get some sand, you ready? Go to Home Depot, get some sand, take your shoe off and kick it like this. Go, oh, I'm so humble. That'll work. Get another rock band going. Uh, 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 uh. You can do the hustle. We can do whatever you want. What do you want from a pastor? What do you want from an honest guy? You want the truth? You want me to tell you the truth? I don't. I don't exactly know. That's the God's honest truth. It's, it's amazing. It's. Uh, I feel like crying. Oh man. It's absolutely stupendous that He saves any of us. Think about that. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that He saves us. Is it not? It's ridiculous. We're awful. <laughs> We're just awful. But with him, it's possible. It's blowing my mind. It blows my mind. But here's what I can tell you. From Holy Scripture, these are the general truth about demands. I mean, Jesus Christ is, deny yourself. How am I going to do that? I like myself too much. Repent. How am I going to do that? Believe. I don't have faith. What? The Bible is chock full of demands that are literally impossible for man to obey without the help of the one making them. While this seems paradoxical, it is nothing less than God's grace. You want to understand greater grace? There it is. That's it. God is merely looking for willingness, humility, in man. That's the best I've got. That's the best I've got. Here's what I can tell you. God demands and solves. As soon as he puts a demand on you, right? You know, like the first time you're like, la la la, life is good. Yeah, I'm a believer. I'm going to heaven. Oh my God. Right? You're like, oh, does that really say that? I've never seen that before. Honey! That's us. Right? And you get convicted and you make oh my God, these demands, they, what do they do all over and over again? They bring you right back to your knees. He says, you want to understand, think about it. If he, get, if he told you all your sins in your life right now, your head would implode. It would go. <laughs> it would be this big as if you went to like 60,000 feet underwater. Is that even possible? Just go with it. <coughs> your head would implode. You, I, I'm a firm believer, you don't, you're never going to know all the sin. Right? So it's not an issue of confessing of every sin. You're not going to know all the sin in your life, thank God, because you'd be completely crushed by it. So God makes these demands, and then He solves the problem. While God will indeed wait patiently for a man's soil... To use Matthew 13's parable of the parables. For a man's soil to be prepared, his demand for repentance never wanes. In a sense, he says, I'd like like to save you. Are you willing to let me? Are you willing to be saved? Are you done trying yourself? Let me show you my grace. Let me introduce you to my son. That's the conversation. I'll wait. Romans 2, right? I'll wait. Until you're ready to repent. I'll wait around. But that's the conversation. I, I want to save you. I really do. But you're, you keep trying to save yourself. You keep trying to tell me, and you're, 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 you're kicking sand in my face. You're spitting in my face. Saying that you don't need to be saved. That you're just fine where you're at. And he's saying, let me show you my grace. Let me introduce you to my son. This, my friends, is the truth behind arguably the most famous verse in the entire Bible. You ready to close on a verse that everybody just seems to want to hang their hats on? Go to John 3.16. Arguably the most famous Christian verse that I can think of. And so the point of the board is really the truth behind this verse. John 3.16. And I'll close. Sound familiar? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. So I encourage you in closing... To dwell on the principle on the board every time you read this beloved verse. And remember that this believing is in a person. Someone who intimated the way to salvation. A person who clearly said both repent and believe. a person described in the bible as being full of grace and truth john 114 a person who would never want anyone to be confused about the one true gospel so before i close i want you to understand one thing while i'm focusing your attention on what is repentance the reality is that i'm really just talking about the gospel all over again <laughs> I tricked you. Good. <laughs> Satan's greatest strategy is to deceive the world about this one precious fact that while man deserves hell, God offers him salvation by grace. Satan is a bitter, unrepentant creature destined for hell himself. And he is the father Of many human beings with the same destiny what I'm saying is what Paul and the rest of the writers in the entire Bible were saying I lied there's one more passage (laughs) forgive me don't judge go to Romans 1 1 this passage is ridiculous I mean, it's so unbelievable, chock full of everything that the Spirit's been saying over the last three years. It's right here. Imagine that. Where we started almost ten years ago. Boy, what a trip, huh? Oof. Romans Romans 1.1. Just think about what Paul is saying here. Just think about this morning's message and just think about what Paul knew to be true about the gospel and who he was serving and why. And then we'll read this and I'll close. Romans 1:1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who is de- declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved in, of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you, in peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity to fellowship with you in this unique way, to fellowship together as family, the way you provide for us. Father, thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, and your love, and your deliverance from the throes of sin, both penalty and even power in time, and then ultimately, the very presence of sin. Salah. So, Father, we just pray for traveling mercies as we take all that we've learned here this morning out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.